All right. Give me another test spot. One, two, three, four. Testing for grab your why. All right. I'm also testing for grab your why. I'm going to turn my gain down just a little bit. Monitor is good. I think we're good to go. Save here. Let's give this thing a shot. Let's do it. Pop. What's up? <laughs> so, um, try to give you a little space here. So, um, yeah, this is Grab Your Why. This is, uh, this is episode one. This is shot. We'll, we'll, we won't even give you the exact date. I got it marked here, but it's spring of 2022. Just picked up these mics, got some equipment. I think I got this to a place where, um, this feels like a good start. And, and, and so the reason I'm here, I'm going to talk to the, to the, to the camera or to the folks who are listening, uh, or listening and watching. Um, so this is episode one, season one, episode one of grab your why, um, having a conversation with my dad, Kurt Garrett, uh, here at my parents pl uh, place in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we're sitting on the floor. If you're watching on video, we're sitting on the floor. The reason why this is what we do. For whatever reason, we sit on the floor when we eat sometimes, when we <laughs> watch a movie. This is like what we do. Um, it's our it's our comfort zone. And so um, trying to bring as authentic um, a voice and as authentic a, a, a perspective of us and our relationship to this space as possible. Um, but shout out to Pops um uh for for kicking us off with the first episode it's important that anything i do that especially as it relates to grab your why men masculinity black men the complexity of men uh um the complexity of who i am starts with my pops so um thanks pops welcome and so I, we'll, we'll just get going and see how this thing goes um but first question who is Kurt Garrett? Well, um, in reflection, um, an amalgam of career building, family, uh, personal aspiration, spiritualism, um, care and concern for mankind. Um, I think that probably sums it up um, in some large themes. Um, let's talk about Kurt Garrett, um, family member, one of 12 children, raised in a town in eastern North Carolina called Plymouth. Um, Shout out to P-Town. I used to like to say that we were Plymouth Rock. Um, two of my northern friends who came down with a lot of gusto and bragging. And uh, I basically told them that this was where the pilgrims landed. Uh, I was off by several hundred miles in a completely different state. 
not Plymouth, Massachusetts, but Plymouth, North Carolina. Um, but that family of 12 children, my mom and dad, Joe and Rudy Garrett, um, raised us um, to be God-fearing and to care for each other. I was number six. Um, I like to say that I was a fraudulent complex kid, sort of right there in the middle, and um, that I made the cut with the older kids. Uh, we had uh, basically two teens in the house, a group of six that were older and a group of six that were younger. I made the cut with the older kids, I think basically to keep my brother company. There are two girls for every boy. So there are four boys in our family and there are eight girls. So it's Kurt Garrett and coming from a small Eastern North Carolina town, much like many um, Southern small towns, population under 10,000 and uh, enjoying a full four seasons of being outside a lot and interacting with lots of people and having a very large extended family. That's Kurt Garrett. Um, you talk about black men. Um, I saw black men all my life. My dad had copious friends. Uh, there were tons of friends also uh, and relations in church. And there were friends who were classmates, uh, most had fathers, and I knew them. Um, so there were always loads and loads of black men. And in my life, uh, in my memory, uh, I see tons of black men who I interacted with. And truthfully, um, in reflection, they affirmed me over and over again in the absence of my father. Uh, my uncles and my great uncles, uh, they affirmed me um, constantly by calling my name and what was uh, considered then to rub your head at the same time. So um, that really helped form, I think, um, who I am. And uh, my school um, was uh, traditionally a segregated school for the first six years. We had mandatory consolidation of schools in seventh grade for me, but the first six years were everyone was black. And I got good affirmation there too from my school teachers and classmates and, you know, started leadership there as well. So, so actually I want to, I want to pause there. You, you, you put through a lot in there and uh, it's, it's a ton we can unpack. One important thing I want to, throw out there and you started to talk about it by speaking about segregation is um the context the backdrop right when you talk about you know your dad and the other black men in your life in the segregated school so what's the social what's the backdrop to all of this right to your identity to um to all everything that you're talking about family and all of that there's a backdrop happening within our country in society Give us some of that context around what was happening around you and outside of your family. Good question. I think about it sort of like this. Um, I was living in, uh, or my life was shaped in sort of two worlds. Uh, the first world is inside of our household. That was a protective place 
it was a place of high energy with uh, siblings. Uh, the smallest number of kids I can remember being in the family was nine. And then there was another baby and another baby. By the way, there are no uh, twin births or multiple births. These are all individual single birth uh, in the 12 children. So that place was a haven. It was a place where you were free to talk, laugh, play, uh, work, and everybody was operating under the rules of Joe and Rudy Garrett. So there were always hot meals that were being made and prepared. There were always clothes being washed. There was always duties and uh, cleaning rooms, um, cleaning the yard. And uh, my grandmother, um, my mother's side, Leona Brown and Johnny Brown, lived um, less than 100 yards away. So we would frequently go over there to see who we called them, Mama and Daddy. They were our grandparents. And so this environment of family every day was part of my life and shaping my view of the world. Then there was a second part um, of that my life that I think helped shape me. One was when you step outside of the house and interacted with people, there was a large black community that we lived in mm -hmm. and we could roam the streets from house to house and we did. Uh, I can imagine probably I was five years old, maybe even possibly earlier, I was going to see relatives who could be three, four, five blocks away, six blocks away, and you either go with a cousin or a sister or brother or you go alone. You were always welcomed in that home. You were always greeted warmly. Um, you were always allowed to play with another kid. So you were sharing houses from place to place. You start with relatives and then they would take you to their friends who were neighbors who aren't relatives. Everyone could move around freely, easily in this little town. So there were dozens and dozens of families that we would visit and play with their kids. And then at some time you tell ahead of clock that you need to quit and you need to move on and get home. It's either lunchtime or it's dinner time. So you need to be able to cut off your plan. But those families helped sort of shape my identity about um, who I was. A third part that I didn't mention, uh, I think that helped shape all of this was television. Television was always present with me and how I saw the world and how I interacted. I thought television was basically a teaching tool that was telling me what the range of activities and possibilities and possibly restrictions I should be operating in. Uh, one thing I didn't mention was the white population. And the reason was they were considered outer limits. To go into their sections of town was to change the dynamics of being protected to a place of high alert and the possibility that something could go wrong fast. Mm -hmm. And television, of course, uh, supported that. Uh, television uh, clearly uh, uh, validated that whole interaction, conflict, difference between uh, neighborhoods. And so uh, that was the backdrop of how I was raised probably the first 10, 
15 years of my life. And um, those, those are really strong memories. Those are grounded, grounded inside who Kirk Garrett is. Got you. Got you. So, you know, what actually is what you're making me think is in, in real time, you know, I, I'm sitting here and we talked about this beforehand that, you know, we we let things happen organically. Right. Like we, we move, move organically through the world and, and just in how we flow with the with each other and, and, and really in everything we do. And what I'm realizing right now is what you're really describing is the foundation is your foundation. So instead of who is Kurt Garrett, I really almost want to take a step back and I want you to um who is who was Kurt Garrett the boy? Who was the boy that laid the foundation for Kurt Garrett? And I think you've described some of that, right? Um as far as family and what that looked like, some of those um I'm thinking about concentric circles and and those groups outside of just your immediate family who made up a community. But what are some of those other elements you talked about television? I know some of this. I know some of the stories and some of the influences that that fed your 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 natural um, inclinations and, and curiosities and things. But like Kurt Garrett, the boy from earliest memories to 10, 12 years old, who who was that guy? So I think I have to go back and reflect on um, those two large groups. Uh, they are that inner working family uh, of children uh, where a new baby would be added every one or two years until we got to 12. And then um, the family interactions with that, that group that include my extended family, like aunts and uncles um, on both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. My mom's side, they are the Browns. And on my dad's side, they're the Davenports. So those groups are participating in to help and to help inform who Kurt Garrett, the boy is at that point. Because inside of that, I'm being validated. And that validation was really, really important because it kept um, me uh, moving forward with what my ideas were. So if I had an idea, the validation, the pat on the shoulder, the rub on the head meant keep going, Kurt. You're doing the right thing. And that was a voice that I heard. Keep going, Kurt. You're doing the right thing. I smiled. They smiled back. Keep going, Kurt. You're doing the right things. I think that was formative for me. I like to tell the story about my uh, aunt and uncles, the Overtons, on my father's side. Uh, they're Overtons and not Garrett's because my grandmother married a second time from Philip Garrett, her first marriage, my uh, grandfather, blood grandfather, and then to um, Buck Overton who were uh, my other aunts and uncles from the second marriage. The Overtons were beautifully warm people. Um, I recently called my aunts, each one of them, and said to them, I wanted to just call you and thank you for being kind to me and loving um, <clears throat> and caring that it helped form and make me who I am. So that was an important time. And then I think about the other part to help shape me was my community. That black community were just nearly as warm 
but they validated me moving through their homes, validated me playing with their kids, uh, being noisy, uh, disruptive. They were never mean and shooed you away from their homes. I really don't know how they got us away from the home, but I can't tell you that I can remember one person ever kicking me out of their house. Not one memory of that. But I remember lots of meals being cooked and prepared, lots of background talking, uh, the adults are talking. I'm not sure what they're talking about, but lots of smiles whenever I saw them. And that just, and I keep using the word affirm, it was a way of telling me, you're doing some things right. Keep going, keep shining. And then I have to mention that there was an element of race in all of this because while race was not heavily discussed in our family, mom and dad didn't seem to be too, too political. Dad would talk about his interaction with white men at work, but there was never a discussion, um, a heavy discussion about racism, um, being um, anything more than an issue that whites had with blacks. It wasn't uh, the dominating themes in our household. In fact, dad told us about uh, moving to eating to North Carolina where his mother uh, started to work as a domestic and his days were free. So he played with the children who um, she worked families that she worked for and other neighborhood kids. And most of those guys were white. They happened to be because he was like big into swimming. This is Edenton, North Carolina. If you know Edenton, there's a bridge there called a Chawan river bridge. And dad used to tell the stories about diving from the highest place on that bridge. He was a great swimmer. Right. And, uh, stories about moving through and around that town. And so we've always felt akin to Edenton. And by the way, we have quite a number of relatives in Edenton, and that was one of the reasons my grandmother moved there for support following her first uh, marriage into her second marriage where she met uh, then Buck Overton. The elements of race in our town um, was that we had separation, we had no real engagement with each other, and a um, key point in that uh, early years was that then Golden Frinks, a civil rights leader, held rallies for blacks to march in our town. And I got to see that live with black men and women gathered around a campfire and discussing strategies and frying fish and eating in preparation for the next day's demonstration. Some pretty powerful images in my mind, I think, that helped to shape some of the ideas that I have. Who you call Kurt Garrett? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's that's um, that's really powerful, and it's interesting because it never. I don't think so much. I don't think a whole lot about Kurt Garrett, the boy. I know some of the stories. Um, I, I know I know the influence of Johnny Quest and how that fueled your imagination, and and we'll, we'll talk about that 
and um, how you were just a natural. You, you mentioned Daniel Boone like two days ago. Um, and so the explorer in you um, and, and things like that. But I, I don't think that I've necessarily put a lot of thought into Kurt Garrett, the boy who was affirmed, the boy who was nourished, the boy who wasn't um, mistreated, right? Especially by by black folks and black adults and family members um, who wasn't thrown away and pushed to the side, um, but who was really poured into and made to feel like someone and that you held on to that. And I think that's something, I think that's a theme. I think that's a life theme that people need. And I think it's especially true for black boys who grow to be black men, black husbands, black fathers, black leaders, um, to, to, to just become black people who feel good about who they are, um, period. Um, so, so, so thank you for saying that. So I, I, I do want to, so I want to, I want to, I may fast forward here a little bit because Kurt Garrett, the boy, and I, I, I touched on you as an explorer. Actually, let's touch on that a little bit. You were an explorer. You were a little bit of a curious kid, right? You, you 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 would take trips into the woods and no do your own thing. No doubt. And so what where did do you know where that came from, that level of curiosity that you eventually that you ultimately have chased all the way here, 40, 50 plus, you know, years later. I'm gonna put the plus on it. How where did that come from that that confidence to explore to go literally go into the woods in Plymouth, North Carolina or wherever, Roper or wherever it was in Eastern North Carolina and do what you did. Um, that, that, that's a real level of confidence. Was it those folks around you or was there something else that you felt drove your curiosity as a child? Really interesting. You know, when, when you're an adult, you, you reflect on things and best you can, um, try to connect some pieces. Uh, they may not all be accurate in the, um, uh, final um, uh, description or, or analysis of them, they they are accurate in their placement. They are also accurate in uh, the, the context, and uh, but whether they were the essential pieces that ultimately uh, led to uh, me being an explorer, I, I can't be certain. Sometimes I think that. I'd love to ask my older sisters, for example, and my brother, um, some of the same kinds of questions to see how well-grounded I am. But let me give it a shot. Um, the men around me uh, on the Davenport, the Davenports especially, on my father's side, my grandmother's side, they were hunters and fishermen, not just uh, in general, but great hunters and great fishermen. They had uh, eight or 10 men who were the Davenports and lived in an area together, in fact, in Plymouth Steel, and uh, we called their area where they had homes built, the Ponderosa. There's a cool story about how my uncle, um, Leo Davenport, acquired that land and then uh, 
lotted that land up into segments, and his children then bought homes and built homes. They built homes, their own homes, on that land. He also owned a boat a long time ago. Uh, that was rather unusual. Uh, and not a small boat, but a large boat that he could take out deep into the ocean, uh, far into the ocean, into deep water, so he could do deep water fishing for larger fish. Um, that kind of, of uh, mentality uh, was readily uh, displayed to me. I would go to his house. He would have uh, venison on the table. Uh, wife was an excellent cook. Uh, they they killed, actually, most uh, wild animals, and she dressed and uh, prepared them as meals. So we would eat uh, wild, wild game uh, from uh, their table periodically, and going there was a regular thing. And then you'd meet these cousins uh, who were hunters and fishermen and very, very skillful telling you how they did it. My rite of passage ended uh, because I was too young when they stopped doing this sort of traditional hunting and fishing, my brother made that cut. My older brother, older by four years, and uh, I was given a conciliatory, a conciliatory, um, twelve gauge shotgun that had been taped up and had no real usefulness. But my dad gave it to me because the the hunting uh, right that everybody was doing had suddenly been cut off, and they'd stopped this. Every boy then gets to go out in a certain age. I never got to that age to go out hunting. But the spirit of exploring the ocean and going into the woods and hunting animals um, was there. Uh, you overlap that with uh, television programs like Johnny Quest, you know, one of my heroes, and uh, his father, and Haji, uh, Dr. Reese, uh, Reese Benton and, and Dr. Quest. Those those guys were my heroes, uh, as well as the World War II uh, groups of science fiction and scientists that came back after inventing the atomic bomb. They came back with all these new ideas about what could be done scientifically and the work that it would take. So I was morphing from a guy who looked at exploring the woods into a guy who would start to explore the sciences. Mm -hmm. And so that transition was helping and being in school and uh, excelling after my brother and my sisters who were also very excellent students, um, I fought in their footsteps and started to do well in school. It seemed just a logical place that I would become some type of explorer researcher, uh, having the aptitude in uh, the sciences and math to uh, actually do that and pursue careers. So those were sort of, I think, the the formation of that explorer uh, attitude. Got you, got you. Um, so I actually, so you, you, you're touching on something. I want to I wanna get into that. I want to take a, 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 maybe a half step back. You mentioned earlier about um, kind of race and racism and how, while that was a, I mean, we can call it a backdrop, but in many ways and in most folks' lives, especially during that period, it wasn't just a backdrop. It was, that was very, it was, it was um, pervasive. And, um, but it sounds like it was less of a held less weight 
um, for you and coming up um, that it was less prominent in your formation of your identity, I should say, that your formation of your identity was not so much rooted in race and racism as it was in love for self uh, uh, affirmations from others around you that community really did protect you. And great examples. Right, and, and, and great examples. And so I, I'm curious about, um, so when did, and then I want to get into uh, Kurt Garrett, the explorer, artist, science, all of that. But when did you, when did race, do you, what, what was maybe your earliest uh, confrontation with race or when, when did you first see it, know it and realize like, okay, I'm, I'm different or I'm seen as different. Do you know when that, when that happened and what did that look like? Let me tell you about two stamps that are in my mind. The first one is a, an insurance lady called Mrs. Vanderford who drove a car to our home where we were then probably nine children we lived then on 104 Freeman Court in Plymouth. Um, Mrs. Vanderford came to collect insurance from my mother weekly. And my mother would always keep insurance policies going on us. So she would, um, I noticed that she would then scrape coins to pay for these insurance policies. I also noticed that when Mrs. Vanderford came to the house, Mrs. Vanderford never got out of the car, but sit in the car. And my mother would go to the car window and would talk to her. So they were having some conversations just outside of Mrs. Vanderford coming to collect uh, insurance money. They would have some conversations. That was a regular view of a white person in our environment. The second one was our interactions with whites in our downtown area. Stores such as Rose's uh, stores in our downtown Plymouth, where we would go, we would always be watched uh, closely and followed. Um, uh, same thing with our local grocery store. Uh, biggest one then was then A&P grocery store and the other thing that you was noted was interacting with whites it was always some way to sort of to deface you by not looking at you and acknowledging you on the street passing you was a bit degrading but it wasn't crushing I've been validated about who I am for your turning away from me to crush me, but it had an effect because I wondered what that was about. Another uh, point that I think sh I should mention uh, related to race was the segregation of the local public pool. The local public pool in Plymouth was a place that had a fence, fence it was fenced. So black people couldn't get any, but white kids did. And we would stand outside the fence, look at them swim. I can't tell you 
um, it's how painful it was to sweat in July heat and to watch them dip in this blue, beautiful, cool water. And interestingly, my, my father being the swimmer that he was, I think it was extra painful. You might notice an aside, my brother, our friends uh, from different places, we swam in the stagnant water under an old factory that had gathered and pulled in a reservoir. That's where we swam, under black shadows and light. And the policemen ran us away from those spots. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's when you said reservoir. Yeah. It's a reservoir, reservoir. Reservoir. <laughs> so, um, got you. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I literally can't imagine that. I, my, I mean, my earliest memories of swimming were probably going to the beach and, and you were always very, uh, um, um, well, not forceful at all. Actually, you gave us, time to kind of get adjusted and be ready to get into the water but it, I, my earliest memories I was always comfortable with the water and, and and also swimming on like swim teams and subdivisions so very very different experience with, with swimming even though that same feeling of not being wanted there still it was, was um, prominent so even though I had access right think about Greenville South Carolina living living off Cobblestone Road my older brother Harris and I swam on the swim team. Um, and even though we had access, we were there, we were on the team. There's a picture of us with our little speedos on and everything. But um, just because we had access didn't, didn't mean that we were, were welcome. We weren't encouraged to be there, but we, we felt comfortable and confident there because um, probably that really came from you. A lot of that came from you and feeling confident wherever we went that we belonged. Um, so I want to I want to move you. So we've talked about Plymouth and, and you've actually shared some things I hadn't heard before. Um, coming out of Plymouth, you end up and I'm going to fill in some gaps and, and then let you tell some of the stories. You end up going to UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, at Chapel Hill, which at that time and even today, UNC is a, is a great school, one of the top public schools, um, public universities in, in the country. Uh, and is well regarded, regarded, highly regarded here in the state of North Carolina. Um, and to do that um, in the in the 70s, um, to, to be admitted and, and go as the first person in your family, I think that's not something that I ever heard you say. But as I've gotten older and worked in education, um, understanding the significance of being the first in your family to go and, and graduate from a university is... Um, can't be understated and so um, which I think speaks again to the foundation that you spoke about right what kind of laid that foundation for you um, but you go there what did you end up majoring in and why because we talked a lot about exploring we talked a lot about uh, um, you know you mentioned Johnny Quest and all these different elements that made you feel comfortable and confident as an explorer but you go to UNC what what did you major in, why, and what was your mindset going to UNC? Well, some big questions, but let me start with uh, 
what I majored in and what I finished in. And then I'll sort of regress uh, in telling the story. So I wound up with a studio art degree. Um, I think I am naturally an artist, meaning it looked early on that I um, had art talent. I think my sisters and brothers recognized it. Uh, everybody compared me to our best artist in town. Um, and, or, and that was among mostly our, the black students uh, in the elementary school and then in the high school. Um, that we had talent there and I was compared to that. We had one nearly professional black artist in town uh, at the time, his name was Erskine Spruill. Can't believe that I still remember that name. So Erskine was sort of our artist in residence and his art was above everything. Um, so you had references to people who were artists and um, I had uh, one art course uh, all the way through school, seventh grade. Um, a Mr. Sutton uh, taught art, and uh, that was the only art course that I had. Our school didn't offer art. Um, but I uh, did well in the sciences and math to think of myself as a um, scientist. And so I went to UNC. Remember, I graduated with a studio art degree, mm -hmm. but I started hoping to be an artist, not an artist, but a scientist, and morphed into a degree after I basically parted myself out of Chapel Hill and then had to return to school after being married to finish this first degree. So when I hit the sciences, my freshman year, sophomore year, did great in the laboratories, underprepared for the lecture courses, but not just being underprepared. I was actually partying. And that partying set me back, um, got me put out of school when I incompleted an entire semester of classes. I had to wait, get those incompletes finished, reapply, and over a five-year period, return to the school to complete it in studio art. Gotcha. So... Uh, that's very. I I gotta say, it's really, it's like equal parts fascinating and and uh, refreshing even to hear you talk about to think about. I don't think that you know those of us who who, who are blessed enough to to have our parents and and know our parents and have relationships with our parents to like hear them say that I party myself out of school is like. I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate, of course, that's nothing new. I, we, we, I, I know your story, um, but I think that's it's wild to think about seeing you and sitting with you here, and to hear you say that is really wild. Um, but you, so you ended up with a studio art degree, um, and 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 I'll, I'll make this point is something that I always felt growing up, we always had paper in front of us. Always had like packs and stacks of printer paper. And part of that is because 
you, in your childhood, you had paper around you all the time because sure. of where your dad worked. And um, I'm just thinking about how that came along. And like you said, you were an artist probably in part because you had the tools around you all the time. And so if you wanted to, you could go and use those tools and apply them. You know, there may have been some natural talent, but there was also the tools there so that you could yeah. practice, right, and put that talent to practice. Um, and so it's interesting because some of my earliest memories were of you as a scientist, um, working as a scientist, but I was never with you when you were a scientist. But I spent hours with you when you had an art studio, GFA, Garrett Fine Arts, right, in Greenville, North Carolina. And so what I really knew you as, I knew you because you would talk about some of the science, like we were your peers or something, right? Um, and I, I want to talk about that later, about kind of that connection to, to me and our connection on multiple levels. Um, but as an artist, I saw it. I, I did it. I had the paper. I would draw and sketch and all that. I never quite saw myself as an artist, but I clearly saw you as an artist. So it's interesting that that's where you, that's how I identify you, or that's my earliest ways of identifying you as a professional. Um, but that wasn't even necessarily the plan um, early on, but it's where you landed. Um, so how do you get so how do you go from studio art degree to scientist like where where you you mentioned you get to unc you party it up party yourself out of school which is hilarious to think about right i barely you don't the partying for you these days is so anyway i'm sure it looks very <laughs> different today than it did in 75 76 right um but you 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 meet mom, get married, right? That's a whole nother story that I, I want to tell and, and hopefully can share here um, as well. But you come back, you finish your art degree, and then what? How do you get back to the science? So um, I did a little uh, contract art when I could in Chapel Hill. So I remained in Chapel Hill um, after I finished the uh, art degree. I'd been married for two years. Uh, I lived in Williamson, North Carolina, for a couple of years, um, helping my uh, wife with her family. Mother had been uh, uh, severely injured and we went there to be helped uh, to her family. And then I returned to Chapel Hill uh, to finish uh, my degree in studio art. And from there, I met an interesting gentleman. My goal at finishing that art degree was to recognize that I could easily be a starving artist. And so um, how do I solidify a career for myself so that I don't wind up being a starving artist? I could do a PhD in art history, could become a curator at a museum, and that was my uh, goal until I met a gentleman named Foster Ramirez. Ramirez was- You're throwing out some brand new names. I've never heard like three or four of these names and I thought I knew all of them. The story gets thicker, right? Yeah, you know there are layers. So Ramirez, um, while I was in Chapel Hill, 
I worked two jobs uh, in my first uh, few years of marriage. Two years in Williamson, come back, finish a degree, and one year at Chapel Hill, and I worked at night as a lab tech at the University Hospital, and then I worked during the day painting houses. So I ran a paint business and contract for painting people's homes, uh, interiors, mostly in the wintertime, and exteriors in the summertime. I had a paint crew and those sorts of things. I did some contract art for some small businesses that were in town whenever I could, but I could not get a job as a uh, artist, uh, graphic artist or illustrator or anything like that. But when I met Ramirez and the way I met Ramirez, so I was painting the interior of a home and uh, the guy who was leasing the home we were painting said, Kurt, would you like a second job? Uh, maybe doing some work for a retired professor who's coming from New York uh, to this ranch uh, where he'll bring some horses, but he won't be able to do them because of his heart. Maybe you could be his hands. So yeah, I consider that. Foster Ramirez was a professor in organic chemistry at Stony Brook University in New York. And when he came down, we got acquainted and Ramirez wanted to know more about what I was doing. And when I told him that my goal was to become a, a curator or, or do an advanced degree in art to become a curator, he goes, ah, that's for rich kids. I said, well, I started as a chemist, a scientist, and I had a really difficult time. What were your grades like? I said, C's, some B's. I had a couple of F's in there too. Didn't work real hard on some stuff. He says, those are great grades for minorities. He says, I put lots of minorities that are out in the field practice. He said, these A's that the guys make, they make good professors. C's are great for guys working in industry. If you're making C's, Kurt, here, you'll do great in industry. I think you should go back to school. Go and talk to Slayton Evans. Slayton Evans, then black professor at Chapel Hill, the only one in chemistry. I knew of Slayton Evans. One of my friends uh, worked under him. And uh, he says, well, if you go to school, Kurt, um, and you think about doing a chemistry degree, the strategy should be go to NC Central, finish an undergrad and a master's or a master's, come back here for your Ph.D. program, and you'll have smooth sailing. So that was the second plan. I went to Central, like he suggested, dropped my painting business, and started on a chemistry uh, career. Had great research projects with um, then Ezra Totten, uh, who Central's chemistry department was named after, uh, then with two other professors, and then a fellowship at Duke. I finished a degree in chemistry at NC Central. So now I'm a chemist with three research projects as an undergrad and I start applying to jobs because while Duke's um, fellowship program brought notice to the dean of school who invited me to come to graduate school at Duke, um, we were pregnant with our second baby, that was you.